O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. That's Psalm 131, which along with Psalm 132 are the psalms appointed for today, Thursday, February the 24th, 2021. 22. I'm getting it wrong every day for some reason. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. What a wonderful uh, image that is. I mean, if, if you just see this this child that the mother has just finished feeding the child, holding her, holding her in her arms, and, and how comforted, calmed, and quieted that child is because it's just been fed, and they get this sort of soporific look on the face, you know, that, that I've got everything I need. I'm perfectly happy because, because I'm content in my body. I'm content in my soul because my mother's holding me. It's just a beautiful image. I really love that. And you sort of see that in the uh, lessons today. The way Paul feels about the churches that he has been fortunate to be blessed to establish, you see that sort of that love of a father, love of a mother for her children. And you see that in Paul in the way that he writes to and reacts to the churches uh, in, in every letter. I mean, even the ones where there's a rebuke with the Galatians and, and this letter to the Corinthians that we're looking at today, you see the, the love that Paul has for them is like a mother with her child. And, and so it's, it's important that we take our satisfaction and delight and comfort and quiet and all that kind of stuff in Jesus because there's no other source of comfort that is eternal. And so what we're doing is resting in the arms of God when we rest ourselves in Jesus. So we're going to see in the passage today, sort of this, the, we're going to continue looking at the life of Ruth in, in chapter 2, verses 14 to 23, and then um, we're going to be in the gospel. We're still in Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 to 37, still in the Sermon on the Mount, and then the epistle is 2 Corinthians 3, 1 to 18, and we're going to look at kind of what Paul's working through there with the people. Uh, it goes back to that same image of... Um, a mother and a child. And so we'll, we'll see some of that as we go through and the way God changes the relationship that he has with his people. So at mealtime, um, Ruth, remember, is gleaning in the field of Boaz, who she didn't know until just shortly before this. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. He's offering her food and drink. And so she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain. So she's, he's providing for her. And she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. Now that language really reminds me of the feeding miracles of Jesus. She ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. That's, that's pretty much exactly what it says in every single feeding miracle that Jesus does, whether it's 4,000 or 5,000 or whatever. Everybody ate until they were satisfied, and then they took up several baskets full of what was left over. And so you see this same kind of um, thing going on in Boaz, uh, who is a, 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 he is what, a great-grandfather of David. So, so the Davidic line continues until it reaches its pinnacle in Jesus. And so he, it's like father, like son, but it's got to do with this is how God would provide. This is how God does provide. He provides not just enough, but more than enough. 
He provides abundance. And so that's what he's done here. Boaz has, has passed her more than, than she could eat. And so she has, she's satisfied and has some left over. And so when she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. Now, that's something that, she, that's exactly what Ruth had asked, is that she could glean among the sheaves. And I didn't, honestly, I didn't pay attention to it yesterday when she said it. I didn't realize what she was asking. And what she's asking is more than what she has a right to. You're not, you, you, the, the law doesn't say you, you, you can glean among the sheaves. It says you have to glean behind that. Because if, if people drop things, they can pick it up. Um, but if she's right there, Johnny on the spot, in the middle of the reapers, then she can pick it up when they drop it. So she's going to get more there among the sheaves. The problem is, and the reason that it's not normally allowed is, is because you have unscrupulous people who could be pulling things out of the sheaves rather than picking things up that are on the ground and have been dropped by the reapers. And so she's, that, that's what Ruth asked for, was to glean among the sheaves. And that's beyond the law, requirements of the law. But here, what Boaz says is, let her glean among the sheaves and do not reproach her for doing that. They would have had a right to reproach her for gleaning among the sheaves. But Boaz extends the the uh, allowable gleaning to among the sheaves. And he says, also pull out some from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. In other words, you know, just every, whenever you get a chance, just drop some stuff. Wherever she is, just drop some stuff so she can have plenty. So he's doing it as an act of charity in some ways, but she's working for it. He's not just giving her these things. She's working for these things. And it's the way that charity, when Jesus talks about let, don't let your left hand know what your right hand's doing and all that kind of stuff, then, then she's not aware that they're providing extra for her. She's just getting a bunch because of that, and so there'll be plenty them and so and it's so it's Boaz is going above and beyond the requirement of the law but he's doing it in such a way that that it's not just charity she's actually doing something for it and it's it's a good principle I think for us in in these things so she gleaned in the field until evening and then she beat out what she gleaned and it was about an ephah of barley and she took it up and went into the city her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned she also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. So, so she didn't store this up and hide it and keep it for herself. No, she took it and gave it to her mother-in-law, uh, what she had that was left over. And her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today and where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she doesn't know. So she didn't say, go to the field of Boaz. He's our near relative. Go there. No, she, she honestly didn't know. This was not a contrived uh, situation at all. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. And so what you see, again, is this word kindness, this word hesed, the loving kindness, which is one of the chief characteristics of God, is his loving kindness towards his people. And so they're seeing this in Boaz. It's his character, this, this hesed, is, is there, and it's not just a, a character trait. It's actually something he, he lives out. And so he has provided for them in this way. And so she says, you know, he didn't forsake the living or the dead, speaking of, of her husband and her two children, that he's providing for them by providing for these two. 
Naomi also said to her, the man's a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. Now, that probably required a little bit, at least, of explanation to say, what is it? What is a redeemer? Well, a redeemer, if somebody goes into debt, right, and, and can't pay their debts, then another relative could redeem the land. They could come in, step in, and say, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to provide for this. I'll pay the debt. Now you're going to become my servant for a season of time. Um, so... That's the way a redeemer worked, but also a kinsman redeemer could be the one who took the place of a dead husband to provide progeny for that husband. So that's what she's talking about, but it's going to require some explanation of the law in order for her to understand what that means. And Ruth the Moabite, here we are again, said, Besides, he said to me, you shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. Not just today, but I can stay with them until all the harvest is done. And again, Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It's good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So you have protection as well. Not only is there provision, there's also protection. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and the wheat harvests, and she lived with her mother-in-law. So we get the details of this sort of uh, budding, kind of hopeful courtship maybe kind of thing that, that Naomi has in mind. You can see the scheming that she's got. Wait a minute, he, he could be the one. He could be the one who is our redeemer. Well, he is certainly the... Uh, however many great-grandfathers away from being the Redeemer. So he, he is the Redeemer, and then ultimately through David, through Solomon, through all the others, all the way up to Jesus, then the Redeemer comes, the true Redeemer. <clears throat> and in the Gospel today, Jesus says, you've heard it said, again, this is he's, he's just quoting from the Ten Commandments in two different cases here in the readings today, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And so what Jesus basically is saying is, I'm going to fully explain this to you. The plain words say don't commit adultery. He said, "But, but it goes beyond that. And again, this is guard your hearts, guard your minds. It's, this is so, so he increases this whole thing. You, you want to know what that sin of adultery really is? Well, it's lust. You've already committed it in your heart by doing that. And so then he goes on to say, if your right eye causes you to sin, that would be lust, right? Uh, Tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. And, you know, I've mentioned this a couple of weeks ago when we were in Mark's gospel that that this, to me, seems exactly like the old law of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And the, the principle behind that law was don't go beyond the loss. So you have a right to take what you have lost. You don't have a right to go any further than that. But there's, so that's that strict justice thing that says that. So then you, know, then you end up with things like what's the value of a hand? So that, that's how you get around actually having to maim somebody to get recompense when you've been wronged is, is that you, you determine what the financial value is, and then that the, becomes the restitution that needs to be made. Here Jesus is saying that we need to be ruthless in a literal application of the law, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but not with other people, with ourselves. That sin is that serious a matter that we need to be so careful about it that that anything that leads us down the path towards this sin, we need to be ruthless about that. And so we we need to apply the law of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth 
to ourselves and to our own attitudes because that way we restrains us from sin. But, but it's, he's saying how serious a matter it is. Then he goes on to, to complete the thought on adultery. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. And that's exactly the process in Judaism from, from the time of Moses. And that, that, that thing, uh, that certificate of divorce is actually called a get. And the principle and, the, and its application still exists in certain parts of Judaism today, that, that actually that is the official divorce document as far as the church is concerned. And it has to be read in public and has to be sort of evaluated and agreed upon by, the, by a rabbinic council. But it's not practiced in all of Judaism, but it is in some. And it got to the point where you could divorce a woman for burning a meal. Because that was that was all that needed to happen, and so, but Jesus says, "So you've heard it said this, in other words." But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And so, there's, there's a, again raising the value of uh, of sin to say, nope, you. you you have the ability to get a divorce like that, but you don't have the the that, that's not God's way. And it's not his will that things work that way. And he, so he carves out this one special exemption for sexual immorality. But the book of Hosea tells us that that, that is not—you don't have to get divorced for sexual immorality because Hosea didn't. God, in fact, told him not to and told, her to, told him to accept that woman back. But you have the right to in the situation of adultery. And other than that, he says, you know, there's no real prohibition or there's no real way around this whole idea of if you got divorced for some other reason, then there's sexual immorality involved in a remarriage, and there's an adultery thing. So he's, he's defined adultery in two different ways, one that has to do with divorce and one has to do with lust. Then he goes on one more time to say, again, you've heard it said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, don't take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it's the throne of God, or by the earth, for it's his footstool. Those are two sacred things. Or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. And don't take an oath by your head, for you can't make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. In other words, if you're a person of character, then that's all that matters. You you shouldn't have to take an oath on something else. Your word should be good enough. Be a person of your word. Don't, Don't swear by things that you have no right to swear by. And that's part of the reason that, for instance, Mennonites and other Anabaptist groups don't participate in jury trials. They, they don't take oaths uh, at all. And so they, it, because they don't put their hand on a Bible and swear on a Bible, for instance, they, they don't take those oaths because they, don't, they, they see this as a prohibition against that. And, and Paul's continuing now. To remember yesterday, he kind of ended with this little veiled statement about people who peddle the gospel. Today, here he comes, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, other people, letters of recommendation to you or from you? In other words, do you need other people to attest to us, which is, again, this this thing about taking an oath. Do you need attestation or am I and my words and my gospel and my life, is that enough attestation or do you need letters of recommendation? Or do you give letters of recommendation to other people? And he, what he's talking about, as as some do, he's talking about people who have come in and he's going to have, he's going to be clearer about this as we move along through this epistle. He says, you are yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by 
and you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us. So what your lives reveal Christ, but that he was brought by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. And here I believe Paul is referring back and quoting from Jeremiah 31, where he, he says, um, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So when he says that, that you're the letter written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, as the first commandments were, but on tablets of the human hearts. And so God says, I'm going to, I'm going to write my law on their hearts. And so that's what Paul's referring to here. This language is hearkening back to Jeremiah 31. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. He said, look, I'm just a man. I'm not claiming anything at all here. I'm just saying that the Lord worked through us, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Again, that goes back to that passage in Jeremiah 31. This is exactly what Paul's speaking of here, because what he says is, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them up out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant I'll make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people." And so that's, that's what Paul's referring to there, to be ministers of a new covenant written on the tablets of human hearts, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And what Jesus is doing is, is speaking of what the letter says. You've heard that it was said, and then he's saying this is what the Spirit says, that that law actually means. So it, it's not a matter of rules keeping, it's a matter of rules breaking, because what happens then, you get the Spirit... So it's writ- that, that the law is written within them. He puts his spirit within us to keep the law. In other words, that we will choose the good, and we will see the good for what it is, and we'll see the wrong for what it is, and that spirit then will lead us into life because it's leading us away from sin. He says, now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory, and that's, again, going back to the tablet tablets with the law on them, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of his glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministers of the Spirit have even more glory? That's pretty straightforward. He says, look, you know, that, that old covenant, that thing that other people are trying to entice you to get into, it was written on tablets of stone, and the glory of that was such that when Moses came back from meeting with the Lord, he had to veil his face because it frightened the people. And he said, so if, if that one that brought death is accompanied by that glory, what about the people who minister this new covenant? How much glory will there be in that? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all. That's the old covenant because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, in the permanence of the covenant, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, but their minds were hardened. In other words, they, they, they failed to keep that covenant, for to this day, when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. 
And he can say that because he, he, he lived it. <laughs> he was a guy who knew the law, practiced the law, thought he knew everything there was to know, and then suddenly found out that, that even though he had read it and practiced what he believed it said, he had been wrong all along, so much so that he failed to see the Messiah and recognize him when he came. And it's still true. You know, I, I do. I, I follow these Jewish rabbinic teachings, and it breaks my heart sometimes to see how close they are to seeing, yep, yep, just apply that one step further and you'll be at Jesus. And then they don't, and it backs off from that. And so there's this veil that's there that keeps them from seeing Jesus for some strange reason. And again, it's heartbreaking to me that they, they don't see this thing. So he says, <clears throat> um, yes, to the day whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. And one of the things that we can be thankful for there is that God's desire, and he did give us his Holy Spirit so that we would know these things. Not because there's some merit in us. It's, a, it's the mystery why he would have chosen any of us. But, but it's grace. It's his loving kindness is the reason we know this. Because he gave, our, gave us his spirit so that we would recognize that truth. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil's removed. Now the Lord is the spirit. And where the spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And we all, with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. What a powerful, powerful statement of hope that is and optimism for for who we are. But we have to pursue it. It's not a passive thing. We have to pursue it. We have to be like Ruth. It's there for the taking. We just have to take it.